On today's show, a lot of heartburn over the proposed food tax increase. And the question, censure over impeachment. Representative Ben McAdams is on the censure train. Tune in Monday through Thursday, 9 to 11 for Dave and Dijanovic. The Starlight Lounge presents An Evening with the Progressive Box. The moon, yeah. That's Hugo, tickling the ivories. He just saved by bundling home and auto with Progressive. Gonna finally buy a ring for that gal of yours, Hugo? Send her my condolences. Hi-oh! This next one's for you, too. There's a burglar in my heart. Thank you. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Discounts not available in all states or situations. Welcome to Innovation and Leadership. I'm Jess Larson. Today on the show, we've got Cameron Adams. Personal journey as well as a journey for the company. So you as a leader, as a team lead, uh, as a product manager, you need to get used to giving away your Lego. And it's a very hard thing, both like psychologically and and also just uh, in terms of company structure. Cameron, thanks for making time. It's an absolute pleasure. Thank you. So do I understand that Canva is the first billion-dollar tech firm in Australia? Uh, it's one of the first venture-backed billion-dollar tech firms, yes. Okay. Uh, yeah, we, we hit unicorn status at the start of this year. Uh, and I think there's been one join us later this year, but that's about it. That's pretty exciting. Yeah. Um, so I before... Uh, you know, our listeners know that I have a background in investment banking and things like this. But uh, before all that, originally, I'm an art school dropout. So 20 years ago, I was learning Adobe Illustrator and stuff like this. And oh, wow. kind of just, you know, kept it up on the side, even though I was, you know, finance guy wearing suits. Um, so, you know, when I heard about you guys from Guy Kawasaki years ago, I just thought, uh, what a great idea of, of, you know, bringing the learning curve down and helping people reach that same level of creativity without, you know, the months of pain. Yeah. I mean, that was, that was our goal from the very beginning. I think each of us who started the company had our own journey to where we were. Uh, Mel, our CEO kind of taught Photoshop during university. Uh, and I had a more formal graphic design background, but still, you know, picked up Photoshop by myself when I was young and struggled through it and, and learned how to make it. And as I kind of developed my skills in both design and computer science, I've always had this real passion for helping other people be creativity. I've created a lot of software that's um, let people who wouldn't traditionally think of themselves as designers to create really interesting things. And I think when Canva came along, it just resonated so well with me and, and really excited me as to the possibilities. And, and for people who aren't familiar with it, can you give us kind of the elevator pitch? On, on what Canva is? Definitely. So, so Canva is a design tool for people who can't design. Um, we offer a totally cross-platform experience from desktop web through to native mobile. Um, so wherever you are, whatever you need, you can jump on and design stuff from business cards to presentations to flyers. Um, so you guys, you know, have got obviously huge adoption and, and people have loved it. Do you share numbers like how many users you have or just giving people anything about kind of the scale that it's reached now? Yeah, so we have well over 10 million active users now and they're creating roughly 70 million designs a month, um, which is 
just a crazy amount. I remember in the early days, we had our, our live stats dashboard up and you'd see like one design drip in every minute or so. Um, and now it's like 20 per second or something like that. Um, yeah, the, the numbers that we have now are just crazy. Yeah, I bet. So um, what are some of the lessons that you've learned? Like what, what are things that people might not expect about what it takes to get 10 million users? Uh, I think uh, something I always talk about is, is launching and, and what it takes to get to a launch, but then what actually happens after the launch. Um, so when, you, when you've got no product, you've got nothing out in the market, you really focus on, on that very first launch, building the very first product that people are going to touch. And, and it's very well worth putting effort into that and, and making it as polished as you can. But sometimes you get this massive fatigue where you hit that milestone, you finally launch, and you figure out that that's not actually the end of the road, it's the start of the road. Uh, we had that in, in the very early days that so we spent about a year building out our product, testing it, making sure that our initial market would like it when they actually came into it. Um, and and we, we, set, we set ourselves kind of an arbitrary launch date, but, but one that we wanted to hit, which was August 26, 2013. And we'd locked in a bunch of press, uh, we got our servers ready. We spent like two months before that user testing our onboarding flow and making sure it was perfect for people coming on with relatively little design skill. And, you know, we worked day and night, weekends to hit that deadline. And the, the team at that time was about 10 people and they were all in the office, um, working hard, putting their blood, sweat and tears into it. And we managed to flick the switch on August 26. All the press went live. Uh, we had our Google Analytics real-time dashboard up and disappointingly, only a few drips came in. Um, we, had, we had quite a wait list that we'd built up and they all came on. But as soon as we'd expended that, uh, the actual organic traffic was, was just really low. And it was at that point that we realized that we have to actually grow this thing and get the word out and make sure that people know what it is and know what it can do. And that was the long road, I think for for a year or two, we saw pretty good growth numbers, but it wasn't like you instantly become Instagram or anything. And it was that strategy that we put in place in that year after we launched that really, I think, set the bedrock for Canvas success. Yeah. So um, can we talk for a minute about how I found out about you guys? Uh, talk about connecting with Guy Kawasaki. Yeah, that was, I mean, Canvas full of random connections and Guy is probably one of the most random ones. Uh, we managed to stumble across, I remember looking on Twitter one day and someone, uh, someone had posted a design, or actually I think they'd retweeted Guy Kawasaki and in his tweet, he had this design that I could tell was just a Canva design. It had all, I think we had about five fonts at the time and we had these particular shapes you could use and he had used all of that in the one design. So I knew it was a Canva design and I showed it to Cliff, my co-founder, and he's like, he's got Kawasaki. And I'm like, Guy Kawasaki, he's like this marketing guru. Um, and we eventually got in contact with him and, and Guy was like, oh yeah, I love using Canva. It's really helped me. Um, so Mel and Cliff flew over to Silicon Valley uh, and ended up meeting Guy. And it was just a perfect partnership. Um, you know, Guy really loved the product. He was in an area where his audience could really use the product and get value out of it. Um, and it was just the perfect fit. So he actually came on as an employee and has been our chief evangelist ever since. 
That's awesome. Um, so, uh, talk, talk a little bit about the, um, you know, post post launch, um, you guys obviously got from, from not a lot of organic growth to an incredible amount of organic growth. What are some of the growing pains, um, when you start getting over the million users and then over the 5 million users and, and some of the things maybe you didn't expect at those bigger numbers? I think with, in terms of user growth, uh, we haven't had like too many problems. Like it's always, it's a, it's a slow ramp up and you have to you know, have a good strategy in place. Uh, but once you're executing on that, it's kind of self-fulfilling. It grows, grows by itself and, and adds on. The, the aspect of growth, which has been difficult, has been the actual internal company growth, which is all about number of people coming in, the team structures, who's working on what, how to prioritize what they're building, um, and also when to take a step back and, and maybe rebuild your tech stack or make hard decisions like that. So yeah, it's actually been the people growth at the company, which has been the high part. What, what uh, are some of the lessons you feel like you've learned as you've had to struggle through that? Uh, definitely that you you have to reinvent yourself quite regularly. And we roughly have the rule that every time the company doubles, uh, you have to completely change the company structure. Um, so things that worked at 10 people where everyone's having lunch and sitting around the same table and talking to each other don't work at 25 people. And what works at 25 people doesn't work at 50 or 100 or 200 or 500. Um, and, and each time that's happened, it's, it's a little bit painful because you get really used to operating in that mode. Uh, you get used to talking to the same people, interacting with them in the same way. And you have to break that. Like you have to get people to sit at a different table or move to a different floor or even move to a different building. And you then have to change your communication style. So instead of talking to them, you might be slacking them or emailing them or commenting in Google Docs. Uh, and even, you know, the way we do lunch now is incredibly different to how we used to do it. Um, lunch at Canva kind of evolved uh, very, very slowly. We, we, we originally used to cook for our staff. We probably had about eight people on at the time. And, and Cliff every day would jump on the George Foreman sandwich grill and put some sausages on there. And there was a period where we had like sausages for about 21 days consecutively. Um, which we got thoroughly sick of. Uh, <laughs> uh, we would do that every day. We'd make a small salad and eventually it got to about 15 people. And Cliff was just like, I cannot spend an hour a day cooking lunch for everyone. So we, we hired a Brazilian backpacker who was just visiting Australia and had a bit of uh, restaurant experience. And he started cooking our lunches for us. Um, and he actually had this, this weird fetish for potato crisps. Every meal he had, we get a packet of potato crisps, crunch them up and sprinkle them over the top, um, which tasted okay the first time, but maybe not the fifth time. Um, and, and lunches have just scaled from there. So from 15 people to now, we have 250 people in the Sydney office. And, you know, lunch is a, is a big industrial process with three chefs um, ordering heaps of ingredients well ahead of time, storing them, massive pots, massive stoves. But the ethos is, is still the same. We've been really keen to keep that lunch thing going because it's such a, a great culture builder. And it really harkens back to the days where everyone was sitting around the table and could talk about stuff and catch up on not only the, their work, but their personal life and create those bonds that really create strong teams. Um, and, you know, lunch, 
the way we do stand-ups, all our all hands, the way we do celebrations, it's all geared around building those team bonds and making sure that everyone belongs at Canva and is passionate about what they're doing. Yeah. Can you talk about this? A lot of people, um, you know, are, are consulting for Mylan. We've got a client right now that uh, just grew from 400 staff to 600 staff in one year. And, mm -hmm. and we're worried about that. You know, do we, do we risk, you know, kind of submarine our submarining our culture a little bit because it gets diluted so fast. And um, any, any other tips that you have for kind of making it continue to feel like Canva? I mean, I think you have to really know what your culture is and what your values are. And culture isn't necessarily everyone sitting around exactly the same table, but you can still have the core of that value being connecting with your team or connecting with people on other teams. And you can find different ways to foster that as the company grows. Uh, so you have, to, you have to constantly be thinking on your feet and trying out different things and seeing what resonates. But I think you can hold on to those core values while still adapting to the pace of growth in a startup. Sure. Um, what are what are some of the other lessons that you feel like maybe the business press or or others don't talk about as much as probably should be talked about for growing an organization? Uh, I think the the way that you make decision making is very important. Um, we've hit several times where decision making has kind of been centralized and as the company grows, it, it just becomes impossible. Um, now that we're close to uh, 350 people around the world, uh, we can't possibly stay in contact with all those people. Um, and we're a very product driven, design driven company. Um, so. Mel and I and, and even Cliff to some extent have always been involved in the product and, and in making decisions and setting vision and, and where we're driving to. Uh, but now the company is so big, it's impossible to do that and impossible to talk to everyone and make sure they're aligned. So you have to like figure out different ways of doing that and also of empowering the people on each team to make their own decisions and set their own goals and drive that passion within the team, just like we did back when we were a startup of just eight people. Um, and we kind of treat each of our teams like that as its own startup that's driving towards its own goals and needs to figure out how to get there themselves. Um, that's, that's probably one of the more important kind of operational things that we've figured out. Sure. Uh, well, let's do this. Let's take a quick break, hear from our sponsor, and then I want to ask what that actually looked like and what some of the decisions you made were. Sure. Okay, so Cameron, right before the sponsor break, I was saying that I'd love to hear what that actually looked like and, and maybe some of the nitty gritty or, or some more granular details about how you did, you know, push decision making down and, and systemize that in a way that would encourage people to still bring their passion to the business. I think it's, it, it's somewhat of a personal journey as well as a journey for the company. So you as a leader, as a team lead, uh, as a product manager, you need to get used to giving away your Lego. And it, it's a very hard thing, both like psychologically and, and also just uh, in terms of company structure. Um, I, won't, I wouldn't say that we got it exactly right the first time. Um, ego gets in the way, jealousy gets in the way. But ultimately, <laughs> if you don't let go of some of these things, then the company is never going to scale. 
Um, and we've, we've kind of drilled that into everyone who joins the company uh, through the onboarding that they have and, and through the values that we instill through all the communication we have with them is that in order to be successful at the company, you have to be good at uh, succession management and being able to set up the continued growth of your team. And ultimately that will probably mean that you will move out of your team and start up a new team or work on a totally different project. And you need to constantly be thinking about that, thinking about who's gonna step into your shoes after you, after you leave them. Um, and also be comfortable with the fact that your identity is not purely based on what you're doing now. Your identity is based on how you grow at the company. So it's not about how great you are at doing this thing that you're doing currently. It's about how great you're gonna be doing this even bigger and better thing in a few months time. And I think if you can, if you can really communicate that to, to your employees and the people working there and make them feel safe and uh, have them trust that their future is insured and that we will look after them. Uh, that's the only way you can really get people to, to buy into that process. <laughs> I love that. Uh, there's a couple of those points I want to, I want to revisit. So this idea of being willing to give away your Lego, I just started, you know, smiling at my end here as I heard you say that because, <laughs> you know, I can see because that can feel so difficult and, uh, you know, how many of us founders have been accused of micromanaging and, and, uh. and, you know, it's almost like, uh, there's like separation anxiety of, of letting our baby grow up and go to school and like yeah, exactly. giving away Lego to some of the rest of the team. I'd love for you to talk about that maybe a little more in depth. Yeah, there's a great, there's a great article, uh, which I think is, is titled giving away your Lego. Um, and it's by someone at a, a startup in Silicon Valley talking about this phenomenon and also talking about the need to do it. Um, yeah, I think as, as a founder, you, you get somewhat addicted to making decisions and being on the ground a lot, particularly when you've, you've grown from three people and you've been the marketing department and the design department and the kitchen all in one. Um, you, you get addicted to doing stuff all the time and, and pushing stuff out or, or, or even pushing code out or, or making design changes. And I think your identity really gets caught up in that. And, and you think of yourself as that person who does these things and it's just constantly churning out stuff. Um, so I remember when we moved from 10 people to 20 people, um, we brought on our first designer. And uh, for a long time, I'd been, I'd been the only one doing design at the company and it made all the decisions and had all this invested knowledge in what the product did and why we made these changes, et cetera. Uh, and when we first brought on a designer, it was really confronting. Like, uh, you know, I, I, I felt like they were challenging my expertise. Uh, like I wasn't good enough. Like I wasn't the best designer. And this other person coming in was almost a signal that, uh, you know, I was redundant at the company. Um, but after, after kind of going through the turmoil of that personally and, and thinking about it and then putting in place a plan to really help that designer get up to speed at Canva, work on their own projects, uh, make their own decisions and be empowered to work with everyone else at the company. I quickly realized that it was my job to step above that and, and rise to a higher level and think about the interests of the company as well as myself as a growing individual and set up the structure by which we could bring in even more designers 
by which I could be more influential and still have everyone who came on making their own decisions, being passionate about their areas and getting their own startup experience. Um, I think that's, that's key to, to remember that everyone's on their own journey and you need to make their journey as interesting as yours was. Uh, so I've worked really hard on that for the past few years. I love it. Well, uh, we're about out of time for the first half of the interview here. Um, one of my favorite questions to ask guests is, uh, what's a piece of advice you would, you would go back and give a younger version of yourself if you could? Oh, that's a tricky one. Younger version of myself. Um, probably tell him to get a better haircut. And um, I think to to not be worried, not be worried about failure and about finding the right people. So I think um, there's been a few few paths through my career over over the years, and I've worked with a bunch of different teams, tried out a bunch of different things with people, and most of the time projects don't work out purely because of the interactions between the teams. It's not because it's a bad idea or it's a bad product or you didn't have quite the right resources. Um, it's about the fit of that founding team and understanding what your strengths and weaknesses are and what your partner's strengths and weaknesses are. And I think you can often get caught up in just trying to make a, a company work purely looking at the product market fit without actually looking at the team fit. Um, and I think in the early days of a startup, you should be really assessing how you fit together with your founders, how they're dealing with change, how you're dealing with change, the types of areas that you're owning and really what the health of that founder relationship is. And it wasn't until I met Mel and Cliff that I really realized, you know, what I needed in partners to, to grow a company. And, and I think they realized what they needed as well. And together, the three of us have, have kind of in my mind formed the perfect company and the perfect mix of skills. Um, and I think I would, if I was to go back to my younger self, I would encourage him to find that fit and work with different people and find those partners that you just really gel well with uh, and lock those down and then you can figure out the rest afterwards. Love it. Well, everybody, uh, besides going to Canva's website, um, where's the best place for them, Cameron, if they want to come work for you, if they want to apply to come at such a big company that's making things happen? Oh, we're definitely looking for a, for a ton of people across every area. If you go to, if you just type in Canva and jobs into Google, you'll end up at the right place or canva.com slash careers. Um, and yeah, definitely go visit it. Visit it. We've got a ton of roles open both uh, here in Sydney and also in our Manila office. Um, so if you're interested in product management, design, engineering, marketing, whatever it is, uh, hit us up because we're always looking for really great talent. Love it. Okay, everybody, tune back in for, for part two of our interview. We're going to ask Cameron more about building Canva. Get to Old Navy for star-spangled style. Right now, everything's on sale, up to 60% off. That's right. Get everything from tees, shorts, dresses, and swim, all at 60% off. Now till July 7th at Old Navy and OldNavy.com. Valid through 7-7, select styles only.